You like Fireboy? I do. You're listening to Your Tables on Fire. A weekly conversation with the hottest game designers on Kickstarter. Here comes your host, Jeff Beck. Why, hello there. Thanks for tuning in to your Tables on Fire. This is episode number 36. Okay, with me today, we have a very special guest. This is Jeff Barber, the founder of Biohazard Games and the designer of Upwind. Jeff, welcome to your Tables on Fire. Hey, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, it's our pleasure. Jeff, why don't you take a moment and let us know a little bit about you. Uh, well, currently working on a, on a role-playing game called Upwind out of Biohazard Games. I've been designing games for a while, took a bit of a hiatus from game design, but uh, we started with Blue Planet back in the late 90s. Uh, I worked on a game called Midnight, D20 setting for Fantasy Flight games. And then uh, after a long break, where I did a lot of gaming, but not much designing, I um, started working on, on this Upwind project. Right. Okay. And it, it's mentioned on your Kickstarter page that uh, you're not alone in this project. Uh, may get, take just a moment and tell us a little bit about the team you've been working with. Yeah, sure. Um, probably most significantly, uh, in the middle of the summer, um, I was uh, introduced to Stuart Wick of Nocturnal Media. Stuart is... Um, one of the founders of White Wolf and one of the co-creators of the World of Darkness. And uh, he's back with a new company, Nocturnal Media, and um, was looking for interesting titles he thought would um, be good to have in, in that company's library. And we started talking, and and uh, he had a lot to uh, offer um, in terms of logistics and creativity and, and backing. And and um, so we decided to team up to see what if we could make Upwind even cooler. <laughs> So then, is uh, is Nocturnal publishing the game, the game, or how's how's the relationship working out? Yeah, well, we're we're uh, we're co-publishing it. Uh, I guess if that's a thing. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, he he's going to be handling distribution, uh, a lot of the logistics, produ- the actual production end um, of of the deal. So essentially, I think you could probably think of Biohazard as a design house, um, and Nocturnal Media as sort of the business end of the project. Okay, that makes sense. Well, let's let's uh, let's talk about you a little bit more. Maybe uh, dig back. Tell us what got you into gaming in the very first place. Um, well, it's probably the same story that a lot of gamers have. Uh, you uh, are that weird kid in high school that nobody quite understands, and then, <laughs> and then you run into another weird kid, and that kid says, "Hey, man, I got this thing called D and D," and you're a little skeptical at first, and you're like, "I don't know what that is. It sounds weird," right. but. There's dragons and swords, and so you're super interested. And <laughs> and then uh, the kid takes you home one day after school and, and starts to run a game, and your mind is blown, right? You're like, what? I didn't even know this kind of thing existed. Right. And, yeah, and it's it's awesome, and you just keep doing it, yeah. Um, I did have a, a bit of a, a, a probably an atypical road. I, I played for a couple of years in high school and then sort of just got, got out of it for various reasons, and then not again till really I was in grad school. So there was a big gap through through half of high school and all of college, and I know a lot of people sort of discover gaming during those times and mm-hmm. and play a lot in in school maybe and and uh, so there was a big gap and I'm looking back I'm kind of surprised that that I did get back into it uh, but then when I did I got kind of back into it hard and and uh, been really enthusiastic since. Mm-hmm. Well, if if you've been uh, role playing for a while, 
in your opinion, what has evolved, what has improved over that time? Uh, well, uh, I think probably a, a couple of things from my perspective anyway. Um, I think the breadth of setting, of course. I mean, you can find anything you want uh, as a setting for role-playing games these days. Uh, I think the different sorts of narrative systems uh, where where it's less about the, the crunch of the rules and more about trying to evoke a particular feeling or thought process or ethos with um, a, a specific mechanic or a specific element of the setting. So mm-hmm. we've got a lot of these, well, something like, you know, like Fiasco or, or Dogs in the Vineyard or those sorts of things that are, I think you might not have campaigns played of those games, but um, certainly they're influential in, in the one shots that they're designed to play. And I think that's been a, a big change. Um, for me, something that I'm really interested in these days and excited about are, are the games that are really integrating their setting and their mechanics so that they're not really extricable, um, or at least the game is better because of the way the two complement each other. Um, and I think that those are the games that I'm finding most interesting for me to, to play and participate in. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I'm hoping Upwind is, is sort of proving to be. Can you give us an example, um, I, you know, either from Upwind or maybe from a different game of, of how that works? Yeah, um, well, I don't know if you're familiar with a, um, a game. It's, it's actually, the, its Kickstarter closed a, a couple of months ago and it's still in production, um, but it's out in raw form so that the backers can play it. It's a game called Red Markets by Caleb Stokes. Are you familiar with that game? I'm not, I'm not, not that one. Um, on the face of it, you can say it's a zombie game, but it's not. Um, it is is quite deeper. It's the tagline is a game of economic horror, <laughs> and and the mechanics, not only in the terminology that's used to describe the mechanics, but in the the practice of using the mechanics, you're always stretched between re- conserving your resources, um, both both in terms of the the character and the and the characters' uh, rewards that they've been accruing. Um, or spending them to to succeed or have a better, higher chance of success in the game, hmm. um, and of course, there's been a zombie apocalypse, so you know everything is limited, and you're struggling to survive, and your ultimate goal is to get out of the the region of the country that's been um, taken over and and get to where civilization still exists. But to only to do that, you have to keep spending the resources that you're struggling to to maintain. So with this tagline of economic horror, every action you take mechanically has cost and so you're constantly being reminded of this um, and constantly struggling against against the you know the vagaries of, a, of, a, of an adventure where you have to survive and and take risks against the the resources that you've accrued and together those two things i mean it would otherwise just be a zombie game or it would otherwise just be a resource management game but the two together strike this amazing quality that really makes it feel like the intention of the game designer. And it, it, it's turned out to be a really fun game as a result, but uh, a really great example of, of that kind of uh, design mentality that I was describing. Yeah. Yeah. And you got me intrigued. That's for sure. That sounds pretty cool. Um, well, so at, with this history of, of role-playing games, can you think of, I think everyone who's played a role-playing game enough has an example of a story that just went horribly wrong. <laughs> can, you, can you think of anything like that to share with us? Uh, that went wrong? Yeah, I, I have sort of an example that I use to remind me of what not to do. Is that what you're... Sure. <laughs> yeah, so um, I used to be involved with Pagan Publishing. Uh-huh. Um, and, of course, they 
did a lot of Call of Cthulhu stuff. And I had this inspiration to run a game out in the woods. I thought it would be really cool to, you know, if you're running a horror game, to set it up to play, uh, like, essentially at a campsite uh, right. out in the woods at night. And um, it wasn't really a campsite. It was a, a state park area, but it wasn't, it was un, uh, wasn't unimproved. We just were out in the middle of the woods. And I spent <laughs> the whole day with, a, with a, a friend putting up this fake campsite where the characters were supposed to be and, and um, arranging props around different parts of the of the uh, space and I had I was just so excited I thought this was going to be great it was going to be the best horror game ever run in practice I mean it, it was it was a hot summer day so it was pretty sweltering uh, even after the sun went down the mosquitoes were all over the place um, the it was hard to see um, it was it was called Cthulhu so it was period and I thought okay well I, I don't want to give them all flashlights or anything like that and so we we're stumbling around in the dark and we couldn't find some of the props and uh, the mosquitoes were eating everybody up and <laughs> all of the dramatic imagery and like events and the creepiness that was in my head just wasn't translating into us standing there in the woods sweating, trying to fight off the mosquitoes <laughs> and play this game. And, and at one point I even got hit by a bat, like a, not a, not a baseball bat, an actual like flying bat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It like collided with me because all the mosquitoes and I had a flashlight and of course, it, you know, and they were, they were good sports. My friends were good sports and they tried to play it through and, and, uh, the, big moment uh, of the game was supposed to be this this moral dilemma about who would be sacrificed to to save the day and and uh i thought they were just going to be arguing about it and, and i think what really happened is people were just kind of miserable and not having a good time and so oh it's me i'll jump into the hole i'll i'll, I'll give up my life it, <laughs> please pick me <laughs> yeah and then of course you know we're here it's pitch black it's like 10 o'clock at night and now we got all this stuff out in the woods that I didn't really think through like, how are we going to get this out of here uh, in the middle of the night and pack it back up in the car and whatever. So we're stumbling through the dark, carrying boxes and bags. And it was, <laughs> it was just a lesson of like, you know, don't let your reach exceed your grasp um, unless you cleared all your players that it's going to be an experiment and you're happy with however it comes out because that was, it was pretty frustrating. <laughs> yeah. That sounds kind of miserable. Yeah, I learned a lot about scenario design in that one event. <laughs> Well, you know, speaking of design, what what was the catalyst for you going from the the player to the designer? How did that transition occur? Um, kind of unintentionally, uh, like I said, I, I but I got working with with Pagan Publishing. Well, before it was even Pagan Publishing, I knew I knew John Tynes as as part of um, this games club at the university we were both attending, and he was starting a fanzine, and and uh, he was looking for artists, and I kind of did some art at the time, and. Offered to do some drawings, and it, it was just fun. It was, it was just this different way to engage with gaming, and I really enjoyed it. And as time went on, I just got more into it and did some writing. And and then um, after splitting ways with with Pagan, I, I wanted to keep doing it, and and that's where Biohazard came from. Hmm. And uh, so, in your experience of both, you know, being an artist on the project, or being the designer, being the writer, do you have a preference on those tasks? Oh, I always think that I would have loved to be a, a more professional illustrator. I just didn't didn't have the talent. Um, mm. But but uh, you know they say a picture's worth a thousand words, um, and but you so you can really still tell pictures with your writing, uh, and you I guess ultimately can't make a game with just pictures. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I I guess I, I like I like all aspects of design, right? I, I mean I, I really enjoy 
the the creation, you know, the writing of the of the basic game. But I, I like the imagination that goes into creating the setting, and I do like doing you know, graphic design and and illustration elements. And uh, it turns out I, I I like promotions. I like talking with people on podcasts. It's really <laughs> fun. Um, and and so working in a small house design house like Biohazard get to wear lots of hats and that's kind of fun. I, I don't like the business end of the thing. I'm not a, I'm a big fan of accounting or uh, shipping or those, those sorts of things, but you know, it's, it's part of what has to happen, but all the other stuff is super fun. All right. Well, uh, that brings us to upwind. So let's talk about that a little bit. Sure. Uh, for those that aren't familiar with the project, can you tell us a little bit about it? Uh, yeah. Um, it's a hard game to pitch. And so I came up with a, a little elevator spiel that I was using at Gen Con this year. Um, and it, people seem to respond to it if they get the movie references. <laughs> so imagine uh, Ralph Bakshi's classic animated film from the 70s, Wizards, uh, has a head-on collision with Disney's Treasure Planet. <laughs> and then we put out the resulting fire with a whole lot of Studio Ghibli, uh, particularly Castle in the Sky. <laughs> so there's a real sort of animated feel to it um and it's about young heroes uh in a very, sort of strange strange world uh, an endless sky uh with bizarre flying machines and and strange creatures and um, bizarre goings-ons uh, a world of floating islands and, and flying skyships uh and an enigmatic enemy um, left over from an ancient legacy uh, and and it's a it's a chance to sort of play Studio Ghibli, the role-playing game, uh, <laughs> if that's your thing. So it does have um, potentially a, a more a more limited audience than than some games. But if those are if those are your your jams, then this is your game. Hmm. Well, you you said it, it was very animated, and obviously all three of those are animated films. What what about it makes it feel? animated as opposed to you know maybe a, a more realistic setting or um well i guess there's a couple of things one it feels that way in my head anyway because that's sort of where the inspirations for it came from and so mm -hmm. i can't divorce it from from the sort of imagery that i that rolls through my brain uh the art that we've been putting into it has been inspired by those sources mm -hmm. um, james stowe um a great game designer in his own right um, who also you i think has been on your show he has um, yeah yeah yeah, he's a he's a great guy and an amazing artist, and he's really worked hard to sort of bring the the visuals to life, and it and it does as a result feel like you know Studio Ghibli or or similar brought to the to the role playing page. Um, but the game itself is is very narrativist, and it focuses on really high action, and it can that action can be as 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 crazy and as far out as you want it to be. The characters themselves can also be as crazy and far out as you want them to be. They can they can be more, um, I guess, realistic and 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 um, sort of uh, appropriate in terms of suspension of disbelief as well. I don't want to mislead anybody into think it's just a, um, a a wild setting, but but um, you can create sort of events and action and personalities that um, are more in keeping with a Studio Ghibli film than maybe a more gritty style game that's intended to be a more realistic simulation of, of real life. The mechanics themselves are intended to support big and, and uh, over the top action um, in a way that um, maybe an incremental system where you're, where you're swinging a sword one action at a time don't, doesn't necessarily support. Mm -hmm. Well, you talked a little bit about the system that you use, I believe it's called the Q system. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Now, was that developed specifically for Upwind, or is that something that's been kicking around for a while? Uh, well, 
Yes and no. It's been kicking around for a while, but um, originally it wasn't really meant to be part of the Upwind project. The setting and the mechanics were initiated separately. Um, The mechanics were intended to to be an alternative, well, an alternative to dice, um, because I have crappy dice luck, to be honest. (laughs) Um, But really it was, the the impetus to create them was um, an idea I had to try and allow a mechanic that, that uh, to create a mechanic that allowed players to decide how much they wanted to invest in single actions hmm. so um, instead of just rolling a dice and let a, a die and letting the dice determine uh, specific individual odds I, I thought it would be interesting if there was like a, a body of, of points that a player could use to power his character's actions uh, and and decide in 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 the moment, how much they wanted to invest in in the success or possible success of what they were trying to accomplish, uh, and I went through several iterations, and I and I was trying to figure out how to create this body of points uh, and how how to spend this body of points, and then it dawned on me that people use cards to to create points and spend points all the time in in a variety of traditional card games, and so that's where that the original kind of kernel of the idea came from, mm-hmm. uh, and then playing some games like Dogs in the Vineyard, stakes based games, or, or games like uh, With Great Power. Um, I really got excited about this stakes-based mechanic. I really enjoyed it and thought it was a, a cool way to address role-playing outcomes. And and that's sort of where the, the mechanic evolved from. Um, it wasn't until I realized that there was a perfect match between the four suits of a card deck and the four cardinal elements that were central to the upwind setting um, that there was a, a good match in in the between that setting and that mechanic system and then started developing them together now they've been together so long and, and undergone so much development that they're inextricable really and and uh it feels like they were created together and evolved and and, and meant to go together all, all along hmm. can, can you walk us through just real quick how that system plays out yeah so um character creation is um kind of different if you're familiar with games like uh, fate and mm-hmm. the aspects in Fate, where you describe some phrase that gives insight to your characters, not only what they can do, but who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the attributes for upwind characters, for Q-system characters, are all those kinds of phrases. You have abilities, skills, and, and potential, your supernatural abilities. And uh, as a player, you create phrases for, for sets of these things that describe who your character is as well as what they can do. And the more evocative, the better, and the more situations you can stretch them over, the better. So when you come up against an encounter, instead of making incremental actions, like I swing my sword, I dodge, I cast a spell, um, you negotiate with the moderator about what you want the outcomes to be. Do you want to defeat the, the pirate skyship and take them prisoner? Do you want to defeat the pirate skyship and so impress them with your prowess that they come over to your crew and now you have a loyal band? Do you want to defeat them uh, or do you want to escape them and then um, sneak back up and and find their hideout without them knowing you were there? Um, You can broaden these outcomes as as far into the future of the game and and as widely in terms of the story as you want. And then you negotiate counter stakes, like the pirates defeat you and take you prisoner, and you wake up in a cell. Um, the pirates defeat you and and steal your ship and maroon you on a on a floating island somewhere. 
Um, you can add consequences that activate later in the story or that have impact farther along in the narrative. It's really up to, to your imagination. But then you have hands of playing cards and um, based on the the attribute that you're using, the descriptor that applies most to the situation or the one that you've convinced the moderator most applies, you play a hand of cards based on the suit that's assigned to those attributes and uh, the, the value of that, either one, two, or three cards. There's ways to generate bonus cards through something we call crowning and another thing we call caches, which are basically more enhancements to the characters. Uh, and you compare your score to the moderator score, you both flip your cards over, um, and then whichever of the two stakes, the moderator stakes or the player stakes, wins, they get attached to the narrative, interwoven with the story, and, and play pursues in that direction. So there's a moment as you're negotiating stakes where there's kind of a, they kind of exist like Schrodinger's cat, right? There's, there's two possible outcomes and you don't know what it's going to be until the play is made, until you've opened the box to see if the cat is alive or dead. Right. Yeah. You, um, you, play, you play your cards and then the, the stakes follow, follow that, that direction in the narrative. Uh, so you, the game plays really quickly. Uh, it tells a lot of story relatively fast because instead of slowing down into rounds and actions, you, you make this play over a, a couple of minutes of negotiation uh, and choosing cards, and then um, you move on with the story and the role-playing. So it plays um, much faster than sort of traditional incremental systems. Yeah, that was one thing that definitely caught my eye, both on the Kickstarter page as well when I first heard about Upwind. Uh, you know, you've mentioned Fiasco a few times, and I think that would be considered uh, a storytelling game first and really a, a role-playing game second. Would you say that's somewhat similar here? Um, I think I think maybe Fiasco has this, um, and a lot of games like it have this sort of, let's make a scene and then just play through that scene and then we mm -hmm. go to the sort of meta mechanics and then we come back to another scene. Um, I think Q is, is on that spectrum, but the, I think the narrative is more continuous. Okay. Right. Um, so in, in a incremental system in a more traditional system, you pause the role playing to roll initiative and, and start swinging your sword. And there might be some role playing elements in that, you know, descriptors or, or choices your character makes during the combat but it becomes very mechanics heavy at that point, right? Um, mm -hmm. And then you finish that action scene and then you move back into maybe a more narrative approach and your character is speaking in, in character and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, the same, same is similar with Upwind in that you, know, you make your negotiation and you make your play in that same space where you would otherwise be using elaborate combat mechanics or social interaction mechanics or what have you. But then you step back out, just like in these other incremental systems, into the more narrative role-playing where you're talking in character and, and making decisions for what happens next without jumping into the, the meta mechanics and, and figuring out who's going to be in the next scene and collecting your dice and, and, so, and deciding how that next scene is going to be set up. You're, you're actually playing it through in a much more familiar sort of traditional role-playing style. That makes sense. Well, let's talk about your, your campaign for a minute. Uh, sure. You've been online for, I think, a few weeks now. How are things going? Uh, they're going well. I, I was blown away by the initial reception. I, was, I had a goal of, of getting a, 100 backers in the first week, and, and I was, had my fingers crossed that we would fund. Um, if we funded, I was hoping we would fund in the first week. I was really excited <laughs> about some of the stretch goals and wanted to get to some of them. 
and we've got a hundred backers and, and, um, essentially the first day and we funded in the first 13 hours, 13, wow. 13 hours and 13 minutes precisely. I thought that was auspicious if, if <laughs> into lucky numbers. Um, but yeah, so it's been going really well. We just broke, um, 20,000, uh, day before yesterday, I think, or yesterday. Uh, and, and that marked, um, our, our third stretch goal. So that was, that's pretty exciting. Um, and, um, I'm looking forward to, to seeing how far we can actually go. Yeah. Yeah, it's really exciting. What what would you attribute all that success to thus far? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I've been <laughs> really thinking a lot about that. Um, this is my first Kickstarter, and the whole process has been um, a really interesting learning one. Uh, one of the elements of Kickstarter that you might not realize if you haven't run one is that you can set up Google Analytics, and it can give you a list of of all the places that backers came from, mm-hmm. linked through from. Um, now the majority of them, and, and I think this is true of most campaigns from what I've been able to find out, but most of them are unassigned because they come from a variety of places that Google analytics doesn't or can't track. Right. Um, so I'd say probably half to a little more than half of them have come from this sort of unidentified sources, but it's been interesting seeing them come from so many other different places, right? That, uh, it really is hard to say that, that, uh, well, this is why there was a lot of success. Um, I do believe that a lot of it has to be from promotions and people knowing about the project before you get started. And I don't want to talk like I'm some kind of wise Kickstarter guru because I'm totally not. Um, I've, just learned, I've just learned a lot in the last six months setting up. When I first decided to to go ahead and publish Upwind and use Kickstarter to do it, I mean, I knew Kickstarter existed and I'd, I'd seen some Kickstarter pages, but I didn't know hardly anything about it. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't have a few people that I kind of met early on that said, you really need to do this, this, and this, then I, I probably would not have had the success. We wouldn't have had the success we've had so far. But um, I, I think those things are really get to understand how Kickstarter works, both in, you know, mechanically in the back end, but also as, as essentially social media, because that's really what it is. I, I think I've come to believe that it's social media. And if you don't have a lot of people already aware that it's gonna that you're gonna launch a Kickstarter before you launch it, you're gonna either have less success or even struggle to fund. Um, mm-hmm. I came at it originally thinking, well, if you put it up on Kickstarter, people come to Kickstarter looking for games, they'll find it, and if they like it, they'll they'll back it. <laughs> I think that's true, but I think um, the rate at which people just kind of stumble onto it and back it is a lot lower if they don't already know that it's happening. Right out if you're not out making podcasts with cool people like you who are willing to, <laughs> to help um, promote the project. So luckily, early on, I stumbled into um, a podcast, RPPR, Role Playing Public Radio, and, and started building a relationship with Ross Payton over there. In fact, he, he's going to be writing um, um, a, a mini campaign for Upwind. His, his, that, that mini campaign was our third stretch goal, um, and he, so he's now on the, on the hook for, for writing um, a mini campaign for us. Uh, but his advice really got me thinking about the, the whole idea of promotions in the modern world of social media. I mean, prior to the Upwind campaign, I, I, I had an email address. <laughs> <laughs> but now, now I have a Twitter account, and now I'm more active on Facebook, and um, we've built up a big website, and he's connected me with lots of podcasters, and I've gone out and, and reached out to lots of podcasters and I met you at at um, 
local convention here in, in the Tacoma area and <clears throat> gracious enough to have me on and every opportunity I'm t- trying to take advantage of to, to get the word out and share about Upwind. And I think that's where, I think that's made the difference between us b- being comfortably successful and maybe still struggling to even fund um, because uh, I, I really have come to believe that if, if you're not promoting in advance, you're really missing, uh, you're leaving a lot of opportunity on the, on the social media table on the, and not really supporting the campaign in the way that, not guarantee success, but, but, but bring that success to a much higher level. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Good advice. So what's next for Upwind? Um, well, we've still got 14 days left, so I'm hoping to, to, um, push past a, a couple more stretch goals. I'm really excited about, uh, incursion which is this sort of mini style print and play game um that we got it at uh, i think thirty thousand. the one of the reasons i'm excited about it is because it's it's we've decided now after joining up with nocturnal media that we may depending upon the interest people have in it and how much they like it in the print and play version we might decide to try and make it an actual box game and that would be uh, just a fun thing to work on um having having not done that before so i'm kind of excited about that Uh, i think I think ultimately what's next for it is we're going to we're going to see the the campaign itself actually funds not just the core book but a, a couple of supplements um, not as stretch goals but as actually part of the campaign and um, I'm interested to see how well those are received as a, as sort of a game line itself I know um, Stuart and Nocturnal are interested in supporting it as a game line and and basing that on on how well the Kickstarter does and how well it's received once it's it's released but there's certainly Opportunities for some of the the more traditional um, supplements, you know, expansions of the setting, um, things that address the the kingdoms in the light and the, the denizens of the dark, the creatures that are part of the world. Uh, one of the social stretch goals was to um, create uh, an, o- an open gaming license of, of of a sort or of some kind. We're still trying to decide which model to follow, but the Q system. There's been interest from various people already about using the Q system for other projects. And uh, it would be neat to see that kind of grow. Um, I, I really like the philosophy behind OGL and sharing the mechanics and, and getting more games out there running on, on the same system. And I think it would be neat to see see that happen. So I think that would be um, a fun way, a fun place to take Upwind or at least the mechanics of Upwind. Yeah, yeah, it sounds really cool. Well, you've already given us some really good advice about Kickstarter, but what advice would you have for someone who's maybe perhaps putting together their first game uh, just you know, just getting started. What would you tell them? Um, well, I'm I'm going to pass this on because it's advice that I was given, um, and not because I have any sage advice of my own yet. But I, I'll, the things I'll suggest, I'm, I'm emphasizing because I, I feel like they've proven true for me. Don't launch till you're ready. Right? Pick pick a date that is good, not just because the the pundits um, on the internet and there's a lot of really good ones. There's a lot of great sources. Okay, let me back up then. There's a lot of great sources on, on the internet for information about Kickstarter and running Kickstarters. People who've been successful and they're really transparent about what they did um, and shared their experiences. Take advantage of that. Do your research. Make sure that you are looking at enough different Kickstarter projects from, from behind the scenes that you understand what worked for other people and try and figure out if that will work for you or how it could be modified to work for you. But then once you've decided when you're going to launch... Um, make sure that you're you're ready well in advance, um, and that your your page really does have 
all of the pieces it needs to. So often you see Kickstarters that don't have much art mm-hmm. and that art really sells. So you're going to have to invest some money in advance to get that art um, and have it, have it um, up on the page. You need to make sure that your page is professional. Um, there's a lot of Kickstarters that you, that I'm surprised at the, the, the uh, typos and spelling mistakes and omissions that just make it look um, sort of slapped together. And if someone's going to give you money to create a project, they are probably going to only do that if they think the project is going to be good and they don't want it full of errors and omissions and things. And, and so you've got to make sure that your page is, is professionally edited and, and in, in good shape, that it answers all of the questions that you think a, a prospective backer might ask, but without going um, kind of geeking out on, on one or, or two details in a class, <laughs> right? Right. That it's got access to other information outside of the page and that you are really responsive to to the questions and comments that people make and are, are on top of it to, to provide uh, feedback as, as people have asked those questions. Uh, and then you got to really promote it in as many ways as you can find to do so. Um, these days, really, a lot of it is through the internet. And even if it's through conversations like this, it's still using the internet as the, as the mechanism. Um, but you've got to be promoting it with, with as many people as you think might be, as you can find that would be interested in, in the product. So yeah, I, um, research, great art, clean, uh, well-structured page itself. Make sure you're ready, um, that, that everything's in place before you launch. And then be, also be ready um, in your personal life to kind of have it take over everything. Not only will you be obsessing over it yourself as you're you know, getting ready to launch, but once it happens, you'll be obsessing over what's happening in the back end. Um, and there'll be a lot of time that you're going to have to put into updates and connecting with, with the backers and answering their questions. So be ready, make sure your own life is ready so that, you know, you're not picking, you're not picking the holiday season to run a Kickstarter because not only are people not really spending much time on Kickstarter, but your, your, your personal life may not have a lot of space in it for you to be kind of taken over by your Kickstarter responsibilities at that point. So make sure your personal life has some room in it um, whenever you decide to launch. All right. All right. Well, good. Yeah. Good advice. Well, Jeff, it's time to lay it all out. It's time to put up one aside and your campaign aside and just focus for a minute on the game design challenge. All right, I'm ready. I've heard about it. Okay. <laughs> so here's how this works. For those that don't know, I'm going to pick a random theme. I'm going to present it to you. And then you're going to think about it, chew it over, and pitch back to me what this game might be. So I get a whole 10 seconds, right? That's right. <laughs> Think right. as long as you want, as long as it's <laughs> under 10 seconds. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we're going to find a theme. And that theme is going to be underwater smuggling ring. Underwater smuggling ring. Now, yes. you are familiar with Blue Planet, I think, a little bit? A little bit. Okay. Well, that's an easy one. <laughs> <laughs> no, you have to go totally different than that. Oh, okay. Um, I would think underwater smuggling. All right. I got it. Um, so I think, uh, uh, my, my brain goes right to, to Jules Verne and 20,000 leagues under the sea. Okay. Um, and, uh, so I'm imagining this sort of steampunky, uh, fleet of submarines. I like it. And I'm imagining a variety of, of, um, 
bizarre destinations, um, some sort of um, maybe it's a maybe it's a, a, a pre World War One alternate history on Earth. Oh, uh, and, yeah. Um, the technology is advanced, so now we've got um, you know uh, this this fleet of sort of personal submarines that uh, are really being used to to sort of support the the black market end of the war effort. Um, to sneak stuff over border, under borders, I guess, and delivering it to to the people that need it and the, and the military forces that need it. Maybe the whole world is balkanized into these small little warring fiefdoms or something. Hmm. So I, I'd imagine there has to be some mechanics around um, underwater combat for these submarines. I think that uh, there's going to have to be um, a, a, a sort of Tortuga-esque feeling to to these to these ports i imagine some of them are even going to have to be in like underwater caverns and and that kind of thing um and as far as mechanics this may be a little out of left field but i stumbled into it a couple days ago and i I mentioned it to some of my gaming friends and they're laughing at me so maybe it's not such a great idea but (laughs) but I'm, i'm i've kind of been thinking a lot about it so in in the game room at home where we do a lot of um, gaming and, and playtesting of Upwind and such, uh, I have a dartboard, and I can't seem to get anybody to play darts with me. I'm not very good at it. I suck at it, but I just really like it. Um, and I realized the other day, you know, a t- standard dartboard has has uh, uh, one through twenty on it. I love it, right? So it's like a d, it's like a d twenty, but there's a little bit of a dexterity associated. Right, it's a skill based d twenty, but. If you give someone varying numbers of darts to represent their stats, right? The more darts you have, okay. the, the your ability in something. If you have <laughs> distance, which they have to stand to the dartboard, right? Okay. Or have templates that you can hang over your dartboard, you know, just papers you can print out that have like different versions of success. You could even make it narrative. You could you could have like big success as as a as a smaller dot on this template and a and a, and a you know a medium success as a larger right. one. Right? There's a whole way to manipulate this mechanic, and then, <laughs> then you throw darts at the dartboard. Instead I love of it. Um, now it might be more dangerous if you have some, you know, uh, clumsy gamers in your group. But hey, you know what? It's a role-playing game, and there's danger in role-playing games, so you might as well use the mechanic for it. So I can imagine creating some sort of like porthole-looking dartboard um, with, you know, um, some aspects of submarine combat on it, and and uh, being able to play out the mechanics that way. But yeah. That is that is brilliant. I, wonder, I love it. I wonder what we could call it. Um under the line or over or under the border. Oh, yeah. You know, there's there's got to be some kind of cool like play on words that would make a great title for this game. Right. Yeah, I think you've given me an idea. I'm going to have to start working on this one. <laughs> okay, well that's I'm I'm super excited for that next campaign. Undercurrents. <laughs> there we go. That's the name. Yeah. I like that. Well done. Well, Jeff, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, best of luck for the final two weeks of your campaign. Great. Thank you. Well, that was Jeff Barber, the founder of Biohazard Games and the creator of Upwind, currently on Kickstarter. You've been listening to Your Tables on Fire. Check out our website for show notes and a link straight to Upwind on Kickstarter. That's www.yourtablesonfire.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Tablefire. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Board Game Geek. Hit us up on any of those sites and give us a review. We'd love to hear what you think. Well, until next time.
go light it up. <laughs>